I think, welcome everyone. This one? Let's get started. So we are, uh, we are live. So there are, we do have a few people on in Zoom as well, just to let everybody know. And welcome to the Genetic Engineering and Society Center's weekly seminar, the colloquium. Very excited to have Dr. Amanda Pierce from EPA today. But before we get started, I just wanted to say a few announcements. Um, this Friday, the GGA uh, GOA, Global One Health Academy and GES Center are very proud to present the um, Maintaining Work-Life Balance. It's the part of the Professional Development Series. So this Friday from 9.30 to 11.30, uh, we'll be meeting at Witherspoon Student Center. So just as a reminder, I know a number of you have RSVP via calendar invite. Um, let me know if you haven't and if you still would like to be added to that. Uh, next week, we also have Daniel Urebe, and it's going to uh, be AI for genetics. He's the co-founder and CEO of Genobank. Uh, but next week, it will be Zoom. He will not be in person. So next week's colloquium is via Zoom for everybody. So just as a reminder. Um, and also, are there any announcements or uh, any updates that anyone would like to bring up before we introduce our speaker? Jill? Uh, from an ag biophase perspective, might it be possible to have a one-day extension on the colloquium from last week, given the holiday? Sure, no problem. Yes. <laughs> okay. All right. And without further ado, we're going to have our ag biophase fellow Nick Lotion come over here and introduce our speaker. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Nick Lotion. I'm a second-year PhD student in Kara's lab. I study risk assessment and governance related to oh my god, my thought process. <laughs> Genetically engineered crops. I also work part-time for the EPA, so I thought it would be great to introduce Dr. Amanda Pierce. So Dr. Amanda Pierce holds a PhD from Emory University, and what she did there was study migration habits and population and ecology related to monarch butterflies. After that, she started a postdoc at uh, UNC Chapel Hill, which then led to being a AAAS fellow at the EPA. So similar to kind of what Jason Delborn is doing right now um, as part of our group. And there she has worked heavily on risk assessment and governance related to emerging biotechnologies and things related to genetics, gene drives, all of those different things. And now she's currently a senior science advisor, I think, if I have that correctly, but EPA titles are always interesting. Um, and is here to talk to us a little bit about regulation and governance related to emerging technologies and how it relates to pest populations. Without further ado. Thanks, Nick. Okay, how that works. Uh, let me know how volume is, especially online. So, like Nick said, my name is Amanda Pierce, and I'm with the Emerging Technologies Bridge and the Office of Pesticide Programs at EPA. So, just an outline of what I'll be discussing with you today. So, first of all, we'll go over biotechnology regulation in the U.S. in general and EPA's role in that. Then we'll discuss two of the main components that I've been working on lately. So there's plant incorporated protectants, EPA's backstory with that, and our recent updates to our PIP regulations. And then uh, lastly, I'll do a couple of brief slides on genetic modifications in animals intended for use as a pesticide. Okay. 
So the biotechnology in the United States is regulated under what we refer to as the coordinated framework. So under the coordinated framework, three regulatory agencies, EPA, FDA, and USDA, all use their existing statutes to regulate biotechnology products. So under USDA, they're looking at protection of plant health under the Plant Protection Act. F FDA is looking for safety of use in food or feed under the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. And at EPA, we're looking at pesticide safety in the Office of Pesticide Programs using the FFDCA and uh, FIFRA, our Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act. So as I mentioned, FDA is looking at whether food and feed grown from these crops that are modified using genetic engineering are as safe as their conventional counterparts. And they're looking at that food crop as a whole, not necessarily one specific part of it. USDA is responsible for protecting agriculture from pests and disease. So looking at whether or not these genetic modifications are going to make a plant more likely to be weedy or some sort of a pest. And under the Office of Pesticide Programs, we regulate the use of pesticides. And so FIFRA is what we use to have a registration process. So developers will submit application packages with their genetically modified plant that has some sort of insecticide or disease resistance trait. And we have an evaluation in which we then register that product to be used as a commercial pesticide in the United States. And under FFDCA, we're actually also responsible for determining whether any amount of pesticide residue and for these genetically modified crops, a lot of times that'll be a pesticidal protein. If they're uh, going to be present in food or feed, if they're going to um, have any dietary risk associated with them. And there's actually one other group in EPA that's also regulating biotechnology. That's in our uh, Office of Pollution and Prevention and Toxics. And they're regulating new chemical substances. A lot of times those are substances that are produced in genetically modified microbes. So how EPA came to play a role in the oversight of biotechnology. So back in the 1970s, a lot of technological advances were happening at uh, the start of these genetically modified organisms. And so that's when discussion really kicked off to be like, what are we going to do? How are we going to regulate these types of products? In the 80s, the first genetically engineered product was nearing commercialization. And so then the US government is starting to think, okay, what laws, what regs do we need? This is typically a reactive approach that we normally take in regulation. And then in the mid 80s, the federal government decided to issue the coordinated framework for the regulation of biotechnology. And by using this approach, they're able to use the existing statutes. So I have this picture here of a genetically modified corn. It's a BT corn. So for EPA, that's really the product that was first coming on the market that wrapped EPA into this coordinated framework. The thought process there is that EPA has been regulating pesticides, like BT is used as an agricultural pesticide. And then if you're taking a gene from that BT organism and inserting it into corn, then the regulatory agency that already has experience regulating that pesticide should then play a role in regulating this new genetically modified crop. So uh, the coordinated framework is born in the 80s. So what was the rationale for having this type of approach rather than creating new laws or a new regulatory agency that specializes in GMOs? So the thought was that the existing laws were adequate and flexible enough for these biotechnology products. And also it's a 
immediate fix. It provides immediate oversight. The structure's already there. The regulatory agencies are already there. These products can immediately be evaluated and go onto the market. Uh, there's also um, the thought process that because we have these flexible statutes, it'll also be more future-proof. So when new technologies are coming on board that weren't thought of yet in the 80s, they can immediately fit under this structure that, that exists. And then lastly, the idea is that by having these existing structures that are not necessarily biotech-specific, we're able to focus on the product that's being regulated as opposed to having something that is specific for genetically modified organisms. And then that last point is one I already alluded to, which is the regulatory agencies who already have experience evaluating these types of products and looking at these specific risk questions are then able to be the ones to evaluate these newer products that are coming down the line. So because we have this framework and there's three regulatory agencies in play, that means that it is very possible that one product is in fact going to multiple regulatory agencies. So then we have this slide here where we're looking at, we've got one biotech plant, which agency is looking at what and why? So our first three lines on the uh, table here are different types of what the EPA refers to as plant incorporated protectants. So these are plants that have been genetically modified to have some sort of insecticidal or disease resistance trait. So for our first three uh, rows, EPA then regulates that pesticidal trait, as well as any residues that are in food or feed. USDA would uh, evaluate the plant to determine if it poses any plant pest risk. And then if there's any food or feed resulting from that plant, FDA would, of course, have jurisdiction over that. The fourth row here is a cotton plant that's been genetically engineered to have some sort of an herbicide tolerant trait. So for this type of a biotech plant, EPA actually does not regulate the genetically modified plant. So instead what EPA does is it regulates the herbicide under its general pesticide laws, as well as any residues of that herbicide that result on food or feed. USDA is still looking at whether or not the genetically modified plant poses any plant pest risk, and FDA is still evaluating the food or feed resulting from that plant. And then lastly, on the row, we've got an apple variety that's been engineered to reduce browning. So there's no pesticidal trait associated with that apple variety. So there's no EPA regulation. For the USDA, they can still look at that to see if there's any sort of plant pest risk associated with the modification. And FDA is still looking at safety of food and feed. So because, you know, what I just showed you, one, one plant, one biotech plant can have multiple agencies looking at it, that sort of thing certainly is going to require coordination. It is called the coordinated framework. The expectation is that the regulatory agencies should be coordinating in some way to reduce overlap and to make sure that we have, you know, similar outcomes. So because of that, EPA works closely with our counterparts at FDA and USDA to ensure that products of uh, modern biotechnology are safe and to ensure and try to ensure as many harmonized approaches in our risk assessment as possible, given the fact that we do have different statutes and different protection goals. Back in 2017, there was an update to the coordinated framework where the regulatory agencies provided new guidance and new updates. And actually under the recent bioeconomy EO, this new work is continuing um, as we speak, currently on a couple of working groups to do this at the moment.
So now to get into the types of products that I actually see in my job at EPA. So what types of biotechnology products does EPA consider to be pesticides? Because the definition of pesticide under FIFRA is quite broad, it's not really what I would think your average person walking down the street thinks of when they think of a pesticide. But legally, they're considered pesticides. So the first one are pesticidal traits in genetically engineered plants that we've sort of been discussing all along. Those we refer to as plant incorporated protectants, or PIPs for short. Um, those are going to be things like the uh, PRI1AB gene, as long with that protein that's coming off of it. And many times those plants also contain selectable markers, like different herbicide tolerance markers. And I'll get into in another slide exactly how we're looking at that under our regulatory structure. We also evaluate genetically engineered microbes, so different bacteria or viruses. And we also have microbial pesticides introduced into animals. So specifically what that's actually getting at are the Wolbachia infected mosquitoes. That's regulated as a pesticide. And then there's also genetic modifications in animals intended for use as a pesticide. Uh, we're also looking at exogenous dsRNA sprayables. And then lastly, there's certain peptides or proteins that are produced using biotechnology that is also under our purview. So you can see there's quite a range of pesticides that we're looking at in our small group. But for the rest of today's talk, I'm just gonna focus on two, um, highlight the PIPs and highlight the genetically, genetically modified animals. So getting into some regulatory definitions for what is a PIP or plant incorporated protectant. So PIPs are comprised of the pesticidal substance produced and used in the living plant and the genetic material necessary for its production. So that's the inserted gene and you know, whatever's being coded on and coming off of that gene. Also included in the regulatory definition are any inert ingredients present in the plant used to confirm the presence of the pesticidal substance. So that might be like something that's an herbicide resistance trait. So you know, earlier I mentioned, oh, we have this cotton plant, it's got herbicide resistance, we don't look at that. That's true if that is the sole genetic modification in that plant. Instead, if you're creating a biotech crop where you've got one cassette and you've got your BT gene on there, and then you've got an herbicide tolerant trait on there, and the reason why you have herbicide tolerance is just to use it as like a selective you know, gene to tell whether or not your BT went in, then that technically comes in and is regulated as what we call an inert ingredient. And so another important thing to point out under our regulations, uh, PIPs can actually be naturally occurring in plants created through conventional breeding, or they can be moved by or created through genetic engineering. And as I mentioned before, we've got our two overarching statutes, so FIFRA for our pesticide registrations, and we've got FFDCA to look at food safety at that pit. So about PIPs, we've been regulating them for about 25 or 30 or so years. And PIPs have been shown to result in reduced chemical usage. They're typically thought of as a very safe pesticide. They have a narrow mode of action and uh, highly reduced impacts on non-target organisms. And they've also been shown to be safe for consumption. So over those few decades, we've registered over 100 PIP products. Most of those are the BT genes and the BT proteins that are coming off of them. We've also started seeing more RNAi-inducing uh, PIPs, so PIPs that are uh, producing a dsRNA to target certain beetle species. And we've also had a few plant disease resistance PIPs. 
And as I mentioned before, the PIPs that have all been registered to date have all been shown to be safe for feed and food purposes. And because of that, they received what we refer to as a tolerance exemption. That just means there's no limit as to how much of it is produced in the plant and it's been deemed safe under FFDCA. So just to again get at what I what EPA is looking at when it thinks of what is a PIP. So we've looked at a number of different traits. There's been a number of traits for lepidopteran resistance, and across those, most of those are in the big uh, field crop varieties. So we've got different types of corn, cotton, soybeans. We've also looked at coleoptern resistant PIPs. And like I mentioned, we have some virus and fungal as well as even some nematode-resistant pips in soybean. But uh, as we're actually expecting over time, so most of the ones to date have been in field crops, but we're starting to see a wider variety of the types of plants that are being genetically modified as you know, different types of technological advances have made it so more people are able to use the technologies and more plants can be modified. So for example, we have a uh, genetically engineered chestnut that I'm sure you guys have heard about or read about in your other studies that's in house at the moment. So the bulk of my presentation today is to talk to you guys about uh, updates to our current PIP exemptions. So like I said, we've been regulating these PIPs, and just in the last uh, end of July, actually, a rule was finalized to uh, have these new exemptions for certain types of PIPs. So since 2001, PIPs that are moved between sexually compatible plants through conventional breeding were exempted under our two statutes, FIFRA and FFDCA. Uh, any exempt PIP still has what's called an adverse effects reporting requirement, which really just means if something like crazy and unexpected happens, you should let the government know so that FDA can enforce and people can make sure that food on the grocery shelves are safe. But under that uh, existing exemption back in 2001, there was a definition associated with it defining what EPA thinks conventional breeding means. And that definition specifically excluded the use of biotechnology. So what that meant is that up until this recent rulemaking, even PIPs that are identical to those that could be moved to conventional breeding but are created using biotechnology required registration and full evaluations. So our final rulemaking allows for certain PIPs created through genetic engineering to be exempt. In those cases where the PIPs put no greater risk than PIPs that EPA has already concluded meet safety requirements, conventionally bred PIPs, and they could have otherwise been created through conventional breeding. There's also an eligibility notification process involved in this exemption, and to determine the eligibility for exemption, a developer would either need to request EPA confirmation that their PIP meets the criteria for exemption, or they can submit a self-determination letter. So I'm gonna go through the first three of these in more detail in the slide, but there is four key features of the final rule. So the first of which is the creation of an exemption for the category of PIPs called PIPs created through genetic engineering from a sexually compatible plant. Uh, the second is the creation of an exemption for a category called loss of function PIPs. And the third is the establishment of that exemption eligibility determination process. 
Uh, the last one is also issuance of a record keeping requirement, which I won't get into much detail other than you just hold on to the records that are associated with the eligibility determination process for five years. That's really the extent of that one. So the basic premise of this entire rulemaking effort is to exempt these plants that are pulling uh, genes or proteins or whatnot from sexually compatible relatives. And so then the sexually compatible definition is really important in understanding what all is actually exempt here. What's our gene pool essentially? So sexually compatible plants are composed of those that are naturally interbreeding, like that middle B population there, probably what we all generally think about when we think of sexually compatible. But it also includes those, per our regulatory definitions, mm -hmm. that are capable of breeding via wide crosses and also those that are capable of uh, breeding via bridging process. So you have some sort of a bridging relative in between to help them interbreed. All of those are considered to be sexually compatible. So we have finalized some new definitions. There's a definition for native gene and native allele. And so what these are doing is they're saying the genes that are essentially allowed to be used from what we call source plants, so from that gene pool that I just established, these are the genes that can be used when you're doing genetic modifications. And by having native genes and native alleles that are limited to that gene pool, we're able to limit the pesticidal substance to those that are characteristic of plants that are sexually compatible with the recipient plant. Our definitions also specifically exclude transgenes that can be moved through conventional breeding. So for example, let's say that you genetically engineer a corn to have a VT gene in it. Well, just because you can now cross corn with corn doesn't mean that that VT gene counts as a native gene. And so by limiting the pesticidal substances to those that are found in that gene pool, we can rely on a history of safe use associated with conventional breeding to conclude negligible risk of novel exposures or hazards. So getting into the uh, more nitty gritty of what's actually allowed under these exemptions, so you can insert a native gene. So this one, if you're inserting a gene and it produces an identical uh, substance, so an identical protein, so the one that was identified in the source plant, and to ensure that expression levels aren't really outside of the bounds of what we might see occurring through conventional breeding, any regulatory regions that are inserted as part of the native gene must also be identical in nucleic acid sequence. So this also is specific to anything that's being inserted. So it's not saying that all the regulatory regions have to be exactly identical. It's just if you've gone out of your way to insert something or make a change. The next one is modification of an existing gene to create a native allele. So with this one, you are allowed to modify an existing gene to match a specific sequence or sequences in a native allele of that gene. It doesn't require that the entire gene be modified, but you must use a single source plant as a template. So you can't necessarily like mix and match different parts of a gene across a, a number of different plants. And then there's one last requirement under FFDCA. So if you are modifying a plant that's meant to be in food or feed, then you need to have the levels of the active ingredient not present at levels that are injurious or deleterious to human health. That's just a clause from regulations. What it actually means to the developer is that if the gene that you've chosen to modify is involved in uh, being known as a mammalian toxin or an allergen or like something that is known to be harmful, you need to make sure that your levels are not any higher than what's already seen in food advance on the marketplace.
So the uh, second exemption category is for loss of function PIPs. And so these are, are characterized by a modification that leads to the reduction or the elimination of the activity of that gene, which then results in a pesticidal trait. So a classic example of this would be inactivation of a gene coding for a plant receptor, knock that out, and then you obtain disease resistance. So you're still getting a pesticidal trait from that loss of function. And there also needs to be a direct uh, relationship between the loss of function and that pesticidal effect. So for example, we've tried to write our definitions such that if you're going out of your way to knock out something that's a known repressor, and you know the reason why you're knocking this out is because you actually want to upregulate another specific gene, then that wouldn't count as a loss of function PIP. That would have to be regulated under that other exemption I mentioned to basically make sure that that food safety aspect is still taken into account. Uh, the nice thing about the loss of function PIPs in terms of developer flexibility is that it does not need to have been previously identified in a sexually compatible plant and there aren't any sequence-specific requirements. So this is an exemption where we really try to focus on the function of that end. And then just some additional information regarding these exemptions. So our exemptions do not limit the number of PIPs that can be created in a single recipient plant. So one uh, corn plant, for example, might have multiple PIPs in it. Uh, each of those PIPs just needs to still individually meet their own exemption criteria, but there is not any restrictions on the combination of PIPs that are put into a plant. And then finally, we're uh, considering multiple native gene insertions for multiple knockouts of that same gene to count as one PIP. And so what that then means in terms of food safety is if you're inserting multiple copies of a gene, then that overall expression level of all of those genes are what you need to take into account when you're making sure that there aren't levels in that plant that might be deleterious or injurious to humans. And then, uh, like I mentioned, the loss of function PIPs, we also understand that there's likely to be multiple copies. There might be you know, a number of chromosomes in a plant. And so knocking out uh, however many of those copies that are needed would also still come in under SS one single PIP. So for the eligibility determination process, uh, as I mentioned, a developer must do at least one of the following. They either need to request an EPA confirmation that their PIP is indeed exempt, or they can fill out a self-determination. At this point in time, the self-determination option is only available for those loss of function PIPs, given the more straightforward nature of those types of edits. Another important uh, piece of information that is useful for developers is that this exemption can also be applied to other varieties of the same plant species. So what EPA is interested in being notified about is that pit plant species combination. If you have one type of tomato, for example, and now you wanna go and edit your other types of tomato varieties, you can feel free to do so. There's no need to come in again. You've already proven to EPA that you know how to edit that tomato plant to create that certain pit. So we have what's called a CDX portal. That's just our online submission system. And there's uh, certain types of information that needs to be submitted through that portal. It's pretty basic, name and contact information, the identity of the recipient plant, uh, including uh, identifier for the gene that you're using, just something from NCBI, and that can just be the generic gene, not necessarily the sequence of the actual PIP itself, as well as information about the trait type. So is this disease resistance? Is it insect resistance? 
Uh, developers always have the option to claim something as CBI or confidential business information. But if somebody wants to do that, then they have to provide additional information saying why, why that is. And then a certification, basically saying, I'm not lying to the federal government. Everything here is true, must be signed. And that non-CBI, that non-confidential information that's submitted to the portal, uh, EPA intends to use that to create a public-facing list of these exempted genetically engineered PIPs, just as a way to maintain transparency and try to build public trust in these types of products. So for the self-determination process, as I mentioned, at this point in time, only developers of loss function PIP are allowed to self-determine. Uh, the information that's provided in the self-determination is just that information above. It's very minimal. And uh, because we're using our electronic submission portal, once somebody submits that self-determination, they actually get an immediate response. And so their exemption goes into effect immediately. The EPA confirmation process is uh, still meant to be streamlined, but a little bit more than the self-determination. So that would come in and uh, a handful of informational elements come with it. So there's biology of the plant, so identity of that plant again, as well as information to show that it's sexually compatible with wherever source you pulled it from. That could be something as simple as biology textbook, um, plant breeding books, that sort of thing. Information on the pesticidal traits, so just a description of the measures that were taken to ensure no genetic engineering components are present in the final product, and descriptions of measures taken to maximize uh, likelihood modification is limited to the intended modification. There's also some information on molecular characterization, so just a comparison between the PIP that you created and where you pulled it from your source plant. And then also there's some history of safe use that's triggered um, in specific situations. So if that substance is an allergen or a mammalian toxin, then you are gonna need to talk about how whatever conventional breeding mechanisms or whatever it is you're doing is ensuring that those levels are going to be safe. And if the substance is from a wild relative where we might not have as strong of a case for that history of safe use, then you need to describe why the PIP is not anticipated to pose a hazard to humans or the environment. Oh, and um, one thing that I wanted to note, we actually have on our website two sample versions of these uh, requests for EPA confirmation. So you can, if you're interested, see the extent um, of information that we're actually interested in seeing. They're like five pages long, including the sequence alignments. So it's really meant to be minimal. So what's next up for tips? So we've got more exemptions planned. So we have acknowledged in the final rule that genetic variation that is observed in plants is, of course, going to be greater than what we've currently captured under the rulemaking. So we intend to revisit that question of capturing a broader range of genetic variation in the future. We actually have plans to post a request in the Federal Register at some point in the next few months or a year, um, essentially soliciting advice from the public or from developers as to additional categories that may be useful. And then also what's coming down the line for PIPs is more self-determination options. So right now, those PIPs created through genetic engineering from a sexually compatible plant aren't currently eligible for the self-determination process. But this is also something that we wrote about in the final rule that we were willing to reconsider in the future, basically as the agency and developers gain experience in interpreting these exemptions, then we can move things over to that self-determination option. So I've just got a couple of slides left. I wanted to touch on genetic modifications in animals intended for use as a pesticide. 
So we regulate those when they're being used for pest population control. Uh, we have experience over the years with two types of technologies that have been used for population suppression. There's the Wolbachia infected mosquitoes. So these are not actually considered genetically engineered, but they're regulated as microbial pesticides. But the risk assessment paradigm is quite similar between the two, particularly from the ecological risk perspective, which is my specialty. So it went on the slide still. And then there's the genetically engineered mosquito. So things like the Oxytech mosquito, for example. So uh, quickly on the green side here is the general um, PIP risk assessment paradigm for ecological risk assessment. So we look at a few different things like environmental exposure, non-target organism hazard, is this like toxic to eat, um, gene flow and the development of invasiveness. And of course, we're looking at threatened and endangered species. So one thing that you have to think about when you're trying to see how well a risk assessment framework now modifies towards a new technology is thinking about the assumptions that are underlying your original risk assessment. So for PIPs, you have a plant. Of course, we know plants can move pollen and whatnot, but like they generally stay kind of where you wanted them to go. Animals, mosquitoes, fly around. And so these types of new considerations have to be um, thought of when you're looking at genetically engineered animals. So for environmental exposure, there's the basic one where you're looking at the movement of that organism itself, but then we're also going to be looking at the persistence of that genetically engineered trait in the uh, population as well. For non-target organism hazard, there's direct effects, like is this hazardous to eat? There's also indirect effects that we generally look at for pesticides as well. Uh, for things that are resulting in population suppression, those indirect effects on the ecosystem might be larger. And so those are novel considerations that we have to think of um, as well. And then lastly, for the PIPs, we're also looking at gene flow. So how likely is this trait able to move from this crop to some wild relative? For most PIPs, we don't really have uh, a risk concern there. For these types of genetically engineered animals, this is a new look. We have new organisms, new biology to consider. So we need to look at the risk of introgression, both of the actual trait itself, as well as potential background genetics that are moving, and the potential for unintended dispersal, of course, as well. So what's next for genetic modifications in animals intended for use as a pesticide? As I mentioned, right now, our experience has been with the mosquitoes, but we're anticipating seeing uh, organisms outside of these mosquitoes in the future, including rodents. And we also have some ongoing collaborations with external experts, both at USDA as well as internationally, to help us prepare for gene drives. So, you know, I just mentioned how we have that PIP risk assessment framework. We're looking at how that applies to things like modified mosquitoes. What we've seen so far are self-limiting technologies. How is it going to push even farther to something that's like a cheap drive? And I promised it was just a couple slides on the animals, so I'm happy to take any other questions you guys have. Just a reminder for people online, uh, type use the raise your hand function or type your question into the chat. Uh, you talked about, I guess, the CDX portal and kind of taking the information that you have from PIPs and then turn it and get it like public facing. Do you visualize that as just an EPA like mission or is that something that you would duel with the USDA and the FDA? 
Yeah, so for a public-facing list, it would just be the things that have come in through EPA. At this point, that's the plan. Um, we're certainly aware that, you know, USDA has their own public-facing lists of many of the types of uh, requests that they're receiving as well. So right now, it's each individual agency is hosting this, but maybe an idea for the media work. Yeah, along that same line, but maybe one that has more past president. Um, when the EPA is looking at pesticide residue on food products, what does the coordination look like with the FDA who's looking at overall things? Yeah, so uh, great question. So when you uh, EPA is looking at the safety of the hip residues in a plant, we're doing a full human health evaluation under FFDCA. So we're doing uh, food safety, making sure it's not an allergen, making sure it's not a toxin, uh, the full thing. And so then how it actually works and how it's coordinated is we're uh, signing that tolerance exemption under FFDCA, which is FDA statute. And so EPA makes the safety finding, and then it's actually up to FDA to do any enforcement actions that are necessary. And so that's how the two agencies are sort of coordinating together on that type of a determination. Thank you. Yeah. Chris, can you turn the lights on? Um, thank you, Amanda. It was really clear talk, which is awesome when it comes to regulation. Yeah, um, can you please go back to the, the ecological risk assessment slide? Yeah. So, I noticed that introgression only came up for animals, and it, my question is like linking the idea of introgression to the chestnut when that's the goal. So, can you? I don't know if you're able to speak to how that conversation is taking place in the EPA and how you're kind of weighing that and what you're actually allowed to talk about because I know that's an in progress. Yeah. Case. Yeah. So I'll I'll just talk more like generic. Sure. Yeah, I guess. But yeah, great great question. So this sort of generic framework is really designed with like right. um, something like a genetically engineered tree absolutely has some new risk considerations that one needs to think about. It's like these are very long living organisms, which you can think of and from a couple of different angles. Does that make something more risky or less risky? Uh, but also that idea where the goal is to establish in a wild population like in nature. And so, yeah, so that type of thing would certainly require some additional risk considerations and likely work across the different agencies um, as well. Yes, yeah, sorry. I know. That's him. <laughs> Thank you. The process of asking for EPA confirmation does not sound very onerous. It sounds like it's five pages filling out a form. So what is the logic in having people self-identify it and it doesn't go in there in terms of public perception? Yeah, so, you know, thank you for acknowledging that the EPA confirmation does not seem particularly onerous. That's certainly not always the feedback, you know, <laughs> that we're getting. So the thought process is that, you know, you want to try to balance between all of your stakeholders. Um, so at the end of the day, we feel that these products, these pesticides that we're exempting are safe and they don't require oversight. And so you have to try to balance between 
innovation and the developers while also the public trust and the transparency side of things. And so by having these two different options for the self-determination and the EPA confirmation, we're trying to strike that balance. So that's why right now the self-determination process is right now restricted to things like the loss of function tips, where there's not necessarily a pesticidal protein coming off of that or being produced. Uh, we feel like it's a lot more straightforward in terms of determining whether or not you've met the exemptions into this function base as opposed to having some sort of sequence level requirements involved there. And so that's why we're like, that one can automatically go to the self-determination side of things. The types of PIPs that have a little bit more involved in terms of their genetic engineering process are under that EPA confirmation. And then we're hopeful that after some time, after everyone has experience with that process, we have now evidence to point to to assure the public these are safe, people are identifying them correctly, and now they can move over to that self-determination option in the future. So just to understand, you know, once you have a self-determination process, and the public doesn't think they're going to know what's happening. So just a question, how much time do you think it does take to do that confirmation? I mean, it, given that the company would typically assess what its product is, how long would that take and how much time would that cost? Yeah, so uh, you're exactly right that we don't anticipate the type of information that we are requesting under an EPA confirmation to require any new data generation. I mean, it seems like pretty basic stuff that one would generate to be responsible and make sure that they actually made what they are thinking that they're making. And so we have estimated that it's probably um, maybe a couple of hours in terms of going through the portal and uploading things in a certain way, since that data should already have been generated for other means. And so one thing to also point out, though, is for that self-determination option, we would still gain information like the plant species, the gene that's being modified, as well as the trait that the developer is making. And so we're still able to put those self-determinations on that public facing list as well. Oh, so self-determinations are on the public list. Yes, yes, they're on the public facing list. They are just not having the full look over that an EPA confirmation would have, which is still a very streamlined version of what a, a registration might entail. Uh, Max, uh, do you want to unmute yourself and ask your question? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, can you hear me okay? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, great. Uh, uh, thanks for the talk. It was very uh, interesting. I hadn't uh, hadn't realized the uh, changes that had happened this summer. Um, so my, uh, my lab works on gene drive. Um, we developed gene drive for agricultural pests, uh, spotted software and uh, New World Screwworm. So, um, so it would actually be useful to get some um, input from EPA as to what uh, risk experiments they'd like to see us do as we move towards uh, getting ready for something to test in the field. Um, but I guess my question is, what, what is there's some thinking that the, the first field test for a gene drive should be more of a self-limiting system like a a split gene drive that that would have a sort of easier path to approval because it's in a sense similar to a uh, self-limiting system that's already been approved. Moxitec. I don't know. Is that is that the sort of way you see it as well? 
Yeah, so in terms of the types of experiments or data that we probably want to see when evaluating one of these types of products, I would definitely recommend checking out those different mosquito risk assessments. So the OxyTech risk assessment, um, both both of them, the original EUP and the amendment, would provide a good framework as to EPA's thinking for these genetically engineered animals. In terms of the first gene drive field experiment, that's uh, a great question. So for that one, I think there's going to likely be a lot of crosstalk again between the agencies because the types of product that you're talking about, genetically engineered ag pest, you can see how that's going to hit across multiple statutes. So EPA as a pesticide, I'm sure USDA would still have a strong interest in that under their Plant Protection Act. And so there's likely going to need to be um, close talk amongst the regulatory agencies. So. The general advice that we have for any developer, especially if you think you're getting close or you're getting to the point where you're trying to collect data and you wanna know what it is that the EPA or the USDA or the FDA is wanting, uh, have those pre-submission meetings, have those early meetings with the agencies because it's it's far easier for us to give you advice when we're looking at a, a product or the idea of a product on a table as opposed to sort of the generic, generic level advice. Yeah, thanks. I guess staying on the topic of gene drive, so you had a slide up um, and you put the National Academies report there. So if you could you just say a couple things about like how a report like that, um, I don't know, influences your work or like what is the relationship between the EPA and a report like that? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, these types of reports are hugely useful. So right now at EPA, you know, I'm working on policy work. I'm working on actual evaluations of the types of products that are coming in. Point being, I have a lot of stuff on my plate. So when we have these types of reports where people have been able to go in and think thoughtfully about it and write it down, and that's just like such a resource for us that it's hard to get other places. So for example, these types of reports, when I first came into the agency, Nick mentioned that I came in as a AAAS fellow. My assignment was, okay, hi, nice to meet you. Write a white paper about mosquito risk assessment and how our current framework might apply or might not apply. So things like these types of papers were super hugely useful for me in actually trying to write something like that. Well, building on that, you mentioned you have a lot on your plate, and I'm not surprised. There's so much there to unpack, right, with risk assessment and then transform that into policy and decisions that while trying to factor in stakeholder needs and wants and all that. So I totally get it. So so just a fun question. If you had um, $50 million for you in your office for, to spend in the next five years, where would you put that $50 million? Oh, I think... Easily, we would, if our office had $50 million to spend, we would spend it on some more people and we would get some additional people in our group, both as the risk assessors who are doing, you know, the majority of the evaluations, but also people that are sort of in my position that are focusing also on the policy side of things because, yeah, there's just really unreal amounts of policy work that is currently happening in this area with so many new technologies coming out on the horizon. I mean, I showed you the list of products that our group is looking at. There's like seven different disciplines or whatnot that you're trying to create risk assessment frameworks to do. So yeah, I think we would spend a lot of that on people and then trainings for those people. You mentioned trying to strike a balance between uh, innovation and stakeholders and public trust. Um, 
what what's sort of the barometer for knowing that you're so you're like meeting stakeholder public trust to put out whatever report like how do you, how do you know that people are okay with it? Yeah, so the one way, the only way that we really can know is when people are coming and submitting things to the docket, when we have these public comment periods that are out, or many times people will set up meetings, you know, up the EPA org chart to let their feelings be known. One of the I know, joking ways that people have talked about in the past is like if everyone is at least a little bit mad at you, you might have hit the right note. So that's one way to look at it. I guess you kind of already answered a little bit of my question, but uh, so the language, and I'm thinking specifically of FIFRA, and I wanted to ask somebody who's worked, you know, working with our government with FIFRA this question for a while. So I've heard people talk about how it's like a benefit cost that would be amenable to medical cost analysis, but also having worked on like a scientific advisory panel for resistance management with, with PT and PIPs. Doesn't seem like a lot of that's actually conducted. That type of analysis is actually conducted. Yeah. And also, in terms of the actual permitting decisions, I mean, you're supposed to account for all of these things, but how do you do it in a consistent way from one decision to the next? What does that actually look like? Yeah. So the the risk benefit nature of FIFRA. So a lot of times you see that more, way more, on the conventional side of things, where you have known risks, like it's a conventional pesticide that kills stuff and you need to balance those risks like are there enough benefits that outweigh those risks that this product should still be registered one of the things that i really love about the types of products that we work on in, in our group is that we're not identifying those risks we really feel like these products are safe alternatives to those conventional pesticides and so we you're right, we're, we're not having to go through that exercise to be like, what are the benefits and are they outweighing the risks when we don't have risks that require that weight? Can you share any insight into what the public comment period, what the public comment process looks like from inside the EPA? Is there a formal analysis of those public comments and who does that and how are they integrated with the decision-making process? Yes, so for sure, uh, the public comment period and how that works is that we'll, you know, post some sort of announcement and then, you know, 30, 60 days, it depends on what exactly we're doing. The public has the opportunity to submit comments to the docket. So comments that are going to be more useful in moving the needle for policy are going to be ones that are substantive. So it's talking about specifics. If you have something that you specifically don't like, you perhaps mention an alternative. Uh, comments that just say, this sucks, don't, don't help. Um, in terms of then who whose job is it to then look at all of them, that's another job of mine. So uh, we will evaluate all of those comments and then we actually have to prepare what's called a response to comments document. So we summarize all of the comments, group them, and then write responses to each of those. And in those responses, we will you know acknowledge what the comment is saying, state the rationale as to either why we're not taking that person's advice or doing, you know, changing our policies. Or then we'll talk about how this comment actually did modify things and how they can go see where those changes were made in other parts of the document. And so we've absolutely updated our policies or modified the way we were doing things based on public comments that we've received. So it's definitely still a useful, useful exercise for everyone involved.
you you mentioned a little bit about uh, new biotech coming up. Can you talk a little bit about um, what the EPA is doing currently about new biotech that's coming up and what's the coordination like with researchers? Yeah, so there's a number of you know novel sort of novel applications and novel technologies that are that are coming out. So one I'll just stick with gene drives as an example. And so one thing that we'll do is attend different uh, symposium or workshops. We hosted one very recently that I was able to attend. Um, and then we have uh, different interagency working groups where we're able to discuss these new applications and see how it fits into the system. And that can be with different um, risk assessors or regulators, but also with academics in the US government as well. For example, we've been working a lot with uh, a USDA group and the Agricultural Research Service as they're building some gene drive models to kind of get that collaboration going as to how are these models looking, what is useful for us, what types of risk assessment questions are we interested in to sort of have that collaboration as we're moving towards these potential new products. As Zach mentioned, being on the EPA Science Advisor, so now that you have that, you expect that there will be EPA science advisory and some of the same so much kind of when you see that Yeah, so I would expect that there would be. Um, you know, the timeline for when there would be a scientific advisory panel, I I can't I can't answer. I don't know, but it certainly seems like you know it's a novel enough application and would be worth everyone's time to have host one of these types of panels to ensure that the agency's framework is, uh, you know, holding up to external scrutiny. Just somewhat related, you mentioned the EO briefly, mm -hmm. and I was wondering if you could speak about how we make addressing that and what we can expect. Yeah, so under the recent bioeconomy EO, the regulatory agency have been instructed to identify gaps or uncertainties, looking at places where there's duplicative oversight, you know, generally another update to the coordinated framework is essentially what it, what it is. And so the different regulatory agencies, EPA, USDA, and FDA are currently in the process of doing that. So right now we're working on a number of different documents that will essentially, you know, hopefully fulfill what the EO has requested and identify a sort of roadmap for the future. And those are currently all in process and hopefully will be um, some version of that will be released to the public in the near future. Okay. Well, if you want to help me thank Amanda again. That was really incredible. Um, a lot of good um, So, you know, people have signed up to go to lunch and be walking across the street to the Robin Curry in a minute. Um, and I just want to remind everyone again that next week will be virtual, so log on to Zoom and we will see you there. Thank you.